This is Episode 3 of Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Richard Norton Smith. It starts after this. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. What were your grades? They were, they were fine. They were, straight I mean, A's? They, I mean, they, I got, they got me at Harvard. But were they straight A's? <sighs> no, I don't think they were straight A's. I think I was, um, for example, science was never, and I regret it to this day. Um, I mean, I think that's a real deficiency. I was, for the most part, uh, and I never took algebra. I don't know why anyone would have, you know, you know. I mean, I I can't pretend that I knew when I was eight or nine what I was going to do, but I certainly knew what I was interested in. Do you remember when a teacher returned an essay that you had to write and said, A plus, this is really good? There were a few of those. I the the one that stands actually. That's, uh, I, I remember at Harvard, I I did an independent study course with Doris Kearns Goodwin. Who, she was the professor. She was a professor uh, teaching a presidential history course that I was enrolled in. But then I I was able in those days at least Harvard was notoriously lax, perhaps. Um, and um, in allowing one to explore areas of particular interest and independent study, and she was good enough to agree to to this. and And I remember I wrote two papers, large papers, on LBJ. And um, she, I still remember, she said she was very kind um, in her uh, in her grading, and and she said. Um, this is clearly your your metier. Had she written her book on LBJ? I think she had, or maybe was in the in the process. What year were you in Harvard? Graduated in '75, so I, I went in the fall of '71, same year as Derek Buck, the new president who succeeded Nathan Pusey following the disturbances of the late. 60s. But if you go back to the high school years, and, and did, did you move around up there in Massachusetts? No, no, that's, that's a, uh, and I think that contributes. I was, we were in one place, and that gave me an opportunity to really kind of dig below the surface, examining the history of the town in which I grew up. But what and, was your high school like, and, and uh, do you have any memories of the impact that that might have had on you? Did anybody care, by the way, that you were this interested in history? No, I was, to be perfectly honest with you, I think I was probably seen as a, a sort of strange 
duck. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> Unconventional. <laughs> Why? I mean, what was unconventional? Did you <clears throat> did you do anything else in high school besides this kind of stuff? Yeah, I had. Uh, I remember doing um, plays. Um, very interest, interest in the theater. Acting. Uh, yes, and musicals, especially, which was obviously uh, a, a, a preview of coming attractions. Um, no, it was just it, it's an awful thing to say. This is several years ago. I was invited back to a reunion, and I'm ashamed to say I I didn't go. Um, and I shouldn't say, but because I, I thought, you know, I didn't know what to say to those people when I was in the same room <laughs> with them. What would I possibly talk about now? Um, and and that's um, terribly fair, and it sounds terribly snobbish. It was no element of snobbery. It was just I. I remember my mother once saying, "I must have been ten or eleven, saying to a friend, "I was standing there. She, he lives in a world of his own." And I think that's probably, uh, and you? I think there are probably a lot of kids who live in a world of their own. What saved me, because lots of kids get chewed up in high school. They they get um, chewed up, they get bullied, they get whatever. But the system um, doesn't make room for individuality, eccentricity, whatever you want to label it. Uh, and I was lucky. I had uh, a, a savior in the librarian the school. Her name was Laura Connolly, and she was originally from New Jersey, and she uh, had been school librarian for, for some time. And, and she was wonderful. She had this... I think she was a quiet rebel against the machine of high school. Um, and um, and she valued above all else creativity. That was her. You know, she was a sort of anti-mame-like figure, in some ways. Uh, and creativity was her mantra. And she thought I was creative. And you know, we we pulled off stunts, and um, not all of which I look back on with with pride, but. But I always knew that I had a refuge. And literally, I could go to the library, and there was a back room in the library where, where I, you know, I remember reading. And, um, and I, I'll never forget what it was. I feel badly about it now. She had an assistant, a very nice lady, who one day I think I just probably annoyed the hell out of. I mean, I'm sure I, I could be obnoxious. And, um, and she, who was somewhat more conventional, I think just kind of, I don't know, said something. And I'll never forget, Mrs. Connolly way later <laughs> pulled her aside, don't you ever, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, now I look back and I, I, I'm somewhat embarrassed by it. But I realize how incredibly lucky and what a, and what a you know, chance um, relationship that was. And we stayed, I'll tell you how close we were. I graduated in 1971. She died in May of 1988, and I read over the phone to her every word that I wrote in every book that I wrote as long as she lived, and that was a lot of a lot of words. 
And why did you do that? Uh, first of all, I had great respect for her judgment. Secondly, I was hopefully uh, cognizant enough to know that um, uh, I would probably hear praise. Um, I was plus also I was you know I was discovering um, the art, um, and I knew she had she she was very discerning. She was very discriminating. She had excellent taste, and I came to realize, I came to understand that she herself was um, someone who felt apart from her surroundings. She was uh, very successful professionally, um, and and she had wonderful children, um, but they were grown up, and I don't think her work fulfilled her. She, I think, as she got older, and I sense this with older people, and now that I'm at the age, I, I understand it better. She lived a bit vicariously through my experiences. So, for example, the day that I graduated from Harvard, anyone who's, who's been to a Harvard commencement knows how impossible it is to get tickets. Um, she, she was there. I made sure that she was there. Um, she had encouraged me to apply to Harvard at a time when that was the most improbable. A, we had no money. No one could imagine paying for it. But B, you know, it was uh, presumptuous to think that, you know, that my grades were such. But she, you know, strongly urged me to do it. And I did it, I think, largely on her recommendation. And it, and it worked out. So she, she probably is the, is the um, that teacher... Uh, that that figure who, um, first of all, was an inspiration, but equally important was a was a source of protection. What was your relationship with your brothers and sisters? Um, and how many of them are still alive? Yeah, I have three sisters who are still living. I had an older brother who, sadly, in the summer of 1980, um, put a shotgun in his mouth and ended his life. Um, Why? Did, what, what was this? What were the circumstances? Uh, well, you know, it's a, a tangle. You, one, you can never be sure. Um, he had had, you know, he'd quit school in the 10th grade, which was a tragedy because he was, uh, you know, very bright and um, had some drug problems. Um, went in the army where apparently he did very well initially. But um, I, I guess the drug problems recurred. He had um, three children. Um, his his uh, first daughter, who now is in her 40s, um, we became close. Frankly, much closer than I'd ever been to Frank. The, the irony is, um, and I don't mean to sound calculated, when he died... By that time, I had already delivered eulogies for my grandmother and grandfather, who I mentioned earlier, and really whom I grew up around. But anyway, when Frank died, um, it was, of course, a totally different situation. He wasn't elderly, and there was this overwhelming sense of futility and blame I mean, I, I can only imagine, you know, you hear 
that there's nothing worse for a parent than to lose a child. And I'm sure that's true. But if it's, you know, at the child's own hand, it's it's hard to imagine, however unjustified it may be, the level of guilt that one might feel. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I saw my parents you know, went to pieces. Um, and um, I understand it. But, I mean... Did they ever? The, did they ever recover from it? I'm not sure you ever fully recover. I never forget my mother, who's gone now, so I could tell the story. On the Sunday after the funeral, was missing. She wasn't at home. Well, it turned out she was at the cemetery. Um, sprawled on the grave site. In effect, uh, communicating with her dead child. I mean, there's a kind of madness that grief can uh, uh, produce. And fortunately, she had the character um, and and the obligations, you know, to to go on. And but I, it was it was you know. You, you're never comfortable seeing your parents vulnerable. And they were probably never more vulnerable than at that time. So my function was, actually, I delivered the eulogy, which on the face of it maybe didn't make sense, except, I want to be careful how I say this, um, I, I think I had an understanding of what needed to be said to try in some small way to, to, to make sense out of what was a senseless act. And um, I mean, the whole, pro, the whole business, you know, about eulogizing people uh, is, first of all, to give some comfort to the living. And that's, you know, as you know, I've had occasion to deliver more than my share. That's the one, actually, where I think I succeeded in in that in that function. What about the three sisters? How how what were those relationships like? Well, <laughs> um, they, they were fine. They, I, I have an older sister, like me, like a uh, redhead, like me, has an acerbic tongue, um, and, and a very verbal, uh, sometimes slashing wit. I mean, dinner <laughs> dinner in the Smith household was. Um, almost a sitcom-like experience um, where um, the the wit, sometimes vicious, Dorothy Parker-esque <laughs> vicious, was was directed usually at my father, who uh, who was a good sport, you know. And now, all these years later, I actually the one real regret I have is that I wasn't um, more appreciative of my father and what he. Did, I mean, he made it possible for me to go to Harvard. You know, they how, actually, how? They, well, they sold some land that they owned to. Uh, you know, I took out some substantial student loans, which took me several years to pay off. So, and in those days, Harvard—I won't say it was affordable, but it was a lot more affordable than it is now. So, but they, you know, they they were extraordinarily generous. Another thing they did, I started collecting presidential autographs. I started collecting politicians' autographs early. 
And they got caught up in it. And again, they didn't have much money, and yet they gave me a Lincoln autograph, you know, one year. Cost God, God, well, I, I know what it costs now. I don't know what it costs then. Uh, they, they've gone through the roof, but you know, you couldn't you couldn't touch it for less than fifteen thousand dollars today. Um, I think maybe three thousand, four thousand. But I mean, three thousand, four thousand dollars was an awful lot of money um, to them, and. Um, it's it's funny. I, I think probably most of us generalizations are dangerous, and um, I certainly don't purport to to speak for <laughs> for um, anyone but myself. But I suspect most of us, if we were given truth serum, would confess to harboring some feelings of regret, if not guilt, uh, that that we didn't we didn't appreciate our parents. Um, at a time when they were defining their lives. How much education did they have? High school. I, um, yeah. My mother was valedictorian of her high school class, but again, for economic reasons, partly, and also because, you know, women weren't expected to go to college in those days. So she, she was, a, as I said, she was a nurse. She and I think it started very early when she was eight or nine years old. Her grandfather, my great grandfather, uh, was a, a farmer, and and he was very very devoted to her. And he was dying a horrible death, cancer of the jaw. And um, she was the only one he would let in her sick room, in his sick room. Uh, and she nursed him, and uh, really still a child. But I think that's where her interest in nursing took hold. And it's interesting because my parents, again, you, you, these things you, you know only come to you later on. You realize she never talked about her work, although it, it must have been it must have been horrible. Perhaps. I mean, I, I remember once she came home, and it was very clear. It had been a really rough night. She worked nights. And there was an auto accident involving young people. And I guess it had just been um, terrible, uh, beyond words. And she, you know, said a little bit about it, but obviously, obviously didn't want to share the horrors. She did tell a story, which I never forgot. Um, talk about macabre. Um, as a, as a very young nurse, she did a stint at what was then the Danvers State Hospital for the like, criminally insane, or anyway, it was it was it basically was an insane asylum, to use an old and discredited term, that that housed criminals, and she did tell a story about this middle-aged to late middle-aged woman, seemingly um, normal, dangerous word, no such thing, but but certainly not someone who called attention to herself as a dangerous figure anyway. And, you know, this went on for some time. And finally my mother was curious and she asked someone, you know, what's her story? Well, it turned out um, her husband went to work one day 
and forgive me, um, for reasons unexplained then or later, um, she put their baby in the oven. And, uh, and I guess the story stuck with me because, first of all, because of its horror, but secondly, because it does illustrate pretty dramatically that um, surface appearances are just that, surface appearances, and that there is something very, very unknowable about lots of people, including people who don't wind up in asylums. Did the baby die? The baby died. Richard Norton Smith is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.